This is Roof English Radio with Darenata, daily English language radio from Iceland's national broadcaster, Roof. Hello, this is Roof English Radio. I'm Darren Adam. Thanks very much for joining me today. Here on Roof English Radio, we seek to bring not just Iceland, but Roof to the world. And today, one in an occasional series of programmes, which brings you the original English language interview from our foreign affairs programme, Heimskvitha, which is broadcast on Raus Et on Saturday afternoons. This episode was hosted by my colleague Berta Björnsdottir, and she spoke to an author called Azam Ahmed, who had quite a story to tell. This is the true story of a mother who fought back against the drug cartels in Mexico, pursuing her own brand of justice to, as the New York Times says, avenge the kidnapping and murder of her daughter. In 2014, Karen Rodriguez's family received one of the worst phone calls imaginable. Kidnappers on the line holding Karen captive, threatening to execute her if the family did not pay a sky-high ransom. The worst happened, and Miriam, her mother, realised that she was never going to see her daughter again. But she then decided to take action and set out to avenge her daughter. And the book is the story of that very brave sequence of acts. Fear is just a word by Azam Ahmed. And as I say, my colleague Berta Bjernstottir spoke to Azam. He told Berta why he decided this was a story worth telling. It was 2017 and I was working on a different investigative project and uh, and I was completely sort of slammed and preoccupied by that project. It was about illegal government spyware. And I saw a blurb in a newspaper about an activist who'd been killed. And sadly, it's not that uncommon for an activist to be killed in Latin America. But then I saw an extra line in this, you know, it was like maybe a 200 word story that she had gone after the people who had kidnapped and disappeared her daughter. And I thought, whoa. Like, is that, could that possibly be real? Or is this just, you know, is this just sloppy journalism? So I sort of bookmarked that that article. And then the following year, when I had time, I went back to it and went to visit the family to see whether it was, whether it was true. You know, it seemed almost too incredible to be true. Uh, and it turned out it was. So it just began with with sort of scanning local news headlines and seeing a brief note about it. And the, the family were okay with it from the start that you told her story? Yeah, they were okay. I think they wanted to build trust. I think a lot of people had come and gone and, you know, media is often in its nascency at most publications in Mexico. So it doesn't necessarily always bring that the same rigor or have the same sort of resources that a place like the New York Times does. But once I began traveling there frequently, meeting with them, building out the story, and they saw how much work I was putting into it, I think it broke down a lot of barriers. You have reporting up, been reporting about the situation in Mexico as well as the book. I mean, were you ever, ever afraid to write the book? Not, I mean, not really. You know, there's moments of tension and there's moments of anxiety, but, but you know, I I have a tremendous amount of privilege working in Mexico as a U.S. citizen. I think if you were Mexican, it's a it's a very different situation. And a lot of the things that we would write about, I think our local colleagues were unable to because of the pressures they would face. Um, so yeah, I, I I don't know if Afraid was the book. Of, of course, you're, I think more, my nerves were more around making sure I got things right. You know, this is a family that's been traumatized on multiple levels. They lost a sister and then lost a mother. Um, so for me, it was making sure that I wasn't pushing too hard in any one direction, you know, overdoing it. And then more importantly, just making them relive 
kind of the worst thing that had ever happened to them uh, unnecessarily. Exactly. What what has the response been? I mean, have other people in Miriam's situation reached out to you? They have. I mean, I know a lot of the community that disappeared, particularly in Tamaulipas, but I'd written about this topic. And, and when I say the disappeared, I mean people who either by the organized crime or government are kidnapped and then literally disappeared. They're taken, killed, and, and buried in a clandestine grave, and the family never knows what happens to them. There's never any resolution. So it's sort of this open wound. And the real trauma of it is that you never know if your loved one is dead. And so you kind of relive this cycle of pain on a loop, wondering you know, if one day your child or husband might walk through the door. So there are, a, an unfortunately, an estimated 100,000 disappeared in Mexico. And I've spoken to to many of them, but the response subsequent to the book, I haven't gotten like a million notes from people, but I've definitely continued to talk to that community and the family in particular. I talk to the son regularly. Okay. Uh, you describe in the book how these drug cartels take over the society and San Fernando is like a small, a small sample of a declining society where organized crime kind of take over. Can you tell me in what social surroundings do these drug cartels become so big and powerful? I think I think it's not that there is like a social allowance for it, if that makes sense. I think they are often predatory by nature. So it doesn't matter the sort of social circumstance you have. What you have is, you know, an, a market demand that is immense and you have a supply route and someone is going to manage the logistics of that as long as that product stays tremendously valuable. And there are different ways to do it. Certain cartels will not involve themselves with the local population. Others will. In the case of the Cetas, it was probably one of the worst examples in Mexico of an organized crime uh, cartel taking over a society and literally taxing it for its very existence. Uh, but it wasn't, I mean, if, if there wasn't a social dynamic that enabled it, if that makes sense. San Fernando was an incredibly happy, friendly place. You know, it was like a, it was all farming. You know, people knew each other. You know, the population was 20,000 people. But when people come in with guns and there's no rules and there's no floor to the depredations that they'll go to, and there's no rule of law or government to come and save them, I think it's more the societal conditions, if that makes sense, as opposed to the social ones, the structures that are there to inhibit something like that. Like in Reykjavik, it would be unthinkable that like an organized crime group could come in and just take over a neighborhood. It's not because you know people from Iceland are so much more closely socially aligned it's because they're state institutions, right? And there are certain ways in which the police or the government can come in to intervene and it would just never get to that place. One of the things I was trying to do with the book was explain how Mexico did get to that kind of place. I mean, the, the fundamental question the book is trying to answer is how can something like this happen? How can a mother's daughter be kidnapped and then killed? And then the mother go to the government, look for help, get none, and go after those people herself and wind up dead as a result of it. Just it's almost so unimaginable that I think the the as a reporter, you know, as a, as a bureau chief in Mexico for the New York Times, I spent a lot of time writing stories about people being killed, about impunity and about corruption. And I always kind of felt like what was missing was a really deep dive into understanding the origins of that. So what the book does is it traces the history of this particular cartel all the way back to the 1930s, which is when Mexico was coming out of its revolution and talks about how the state and organized crime sort of almost had a joint venture running the company, running the country in some to some degree. And it meant that law enforcement and all of the other things that 
establish a rule of law were completely absent in the process of the almost the metastasis of the state and organized crime nexus. Thereby, at some point, you arrive at a place where a cartel can take over a town, operate with utter impunity to the degree that like even victims are being re-victimized by the same cartel and no one's coming to help them. Yeah, like a system that never like uh, grabs you when when something happens. I mean, that must tell us something about the situation that you know Miriam's quest went on for like three years and she, she succeeded in some part. I mean, some a lot of people were brought into justice because of her. I mean, can you tell me like again what what does that tell us about the situation that one woman's quest you know brings justice to people that otherwise wouldn't have? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of a it's a it's a sad tale. On a number of levels. On the one, okay, on the first level, it's quite amazing that you have someone with that fortitude and ability, someone who can wear disguises, conduct investigations, build a roster of people who are helpful, who will help her out in going after arguably the most violent cartel in Mexico's history. It's extraordinary. She was just a, a merchant. She worked at the market, mother of three. You know, there was nothing, if you talk to people who knew her when she was younger, there was nothing exceptional. She was smart and, and capable, but she just broke and was able to do something that is ripped straight from a Hollywood screenplay. So on the one hand, that's that's an extraordinary thing. I think the darker layer is why is that even required? Why does a mother have to do that? Why would anyone have to do that? And sure, she had a, she had success. You know, she found some of these people. Some of them were killed as a result of her investigation. Others were imprisoned. But at the end of the day, she was killed. And a lot of those people who are imprisoned will probably get out of jail because there's just not enough evidence to convict them. <laughs> Excuse me. And so I think the I think the takeaway is a lot more complex than I'd like it to be, or than I think a reader might like it to be. You know, you someone had to take matters into their own hands. And then even when they did take matters into their own hands and paid the ultimate price for it, it's unclear whether or not that will have reckoned with or made a, a fundamental difference. Now, it's been 10 years now since Karen was kidnapped, kidnapped and killed. Is this still happening? Has the situation in Mexico changed at all? It's still happening in some places. I mean, the setas are, are a shadow of their former selves. I think they had reached a point where they had done too much and pioneered too many different ways and modalities of violence that terrified the government, terrified the United States. And so they were, they were pretty much taken out. Um, but that sort of violence, that kind of recklessness and that utter lack of the rule of law, that still persists for sure. The depredations that the Setas sort of went to, maybe not as much specifically, but there's there's still incredible levels of homicide and, and drug trafficking, kidnapping, and violence. And the, and the corruption within the system is also very severe, right? So when you hear about the situation, you don't get very optimistic. It's, like I said, not only the cartels, but only yeah, the, the corruption in all aspects of the administration, the justice system and everywhere. I mean, is there a way back? I mean, it's it's almost not a way back, right? It's like a way forward because they have to sort of create something that hasn't really existed. Yeah. If you if you look at how Mexico came to be how it is, you have this government that's growing and it's one political party that dominated for like 70 years. So it wasn't so much a political party as it was just the government. And they kind of had an understanding with organized crime because they were almost, you know, a famous writer once called it the world's most perfect dictatorship because it looked like a democracy, had elections like a democracy, but really it was like one president who ruled over an entire nation and had command and control from his office all the way down to the local mayor's office. 
Now, they basically had organized crime in some ways as a as like a subsidiary. And organized crime, listen to them, did what they said because they were the dominant, almost autocratic institution in the country. As democracy came to Mexico and as that party lost its grip on power, there was an inversion and suddenly organized crime was making tremendous amounts of money and the government was no longer one coherent monolith. It was no longer just this one party that was almost like a dictatorship. And when that inversion happened, then organized crime could kind of do what it want, wanted. And the failure to ever build a law enforcement system in the first place meant there were no police they could call. There were no prosecutors they could turn to. The, the military was who they used. And the military had one response, which was violent action. And I think in most places, it's become clear that violence doesn't solve violence, especially in the long term. So when we talk about a way forward, in some ways, it is a uh, a question about what can be built and what can be instituted in a place where it's been so malformed from the beginning, you almost have to, you have to start anew. I do think that Mexico is evolving. I mean, the first time this party lost was 25 years ago. That's a very short period of time. That means 25 years ago was kind of the first time real democracy came to Mexico. So it's a, it's a process that is evolving and transitioning and changing. And I think it will obviously take time and along the way, unfortunately, because of the United States' drug addiction and Mexico's failed rule of law, it is going to be a very violent process. But I do think that in time, these things will evolve and find new new realities. Yeah, hopefully. My last question is about, you know, we get we read regular news, of course, on the situation in Mexico, like in other countries, but they kind of tend to drown in other stories. Uh, there's always a biggest story in the world. First, it was Ukraine. Now it's Gaza. Uh, does that matter uh, foreign coverage in like like in Mexico and what's been going on there? Does it matter that it's been covered in that it gets covered in the foreign media? I think it matters. I mean, you're right. We we're in a world where there is so much news and so much devastating news that it's kind of this this constant escalation of news stories. As you said, it was Ukraine and then it was Gaza. I do think it's important to bear witness to these things. I think a lot of times the domestic media in certain countries doesn't have the resources or sometimes the opportunity to cover these things. So writing about it, not only for New York Times readers, but for anyone else who might be curious about what's happening in Mexico. I have a colleague there who's doing wonderful investigations and looking into what's happening in the country. And I think it matters. It's important. It might not be as attention-grabbing as what's happening in Gaza, and that's probably fair enough. I mean, what's happening in Gaza is, is devastating as well. But that's not a reason not to do it. And I think ultimately it also is a check on the government itself. You know. The, their number one trading partner is the United States. And if the United States and the government in the United States becomes aware of certain things, that inhibits the way that Mexico can act. So I think it's a it's a check and balance, and maybe not as, as much of one as it might be in the United States where our majority audience is, but it's still it's still important. Azam Ahmed in conversation with my colleague Birta Bjornsdotter in the original English-language interview recorded for the Raus et programme Heimskvither. This is Ruv English Radio. I'm Darren Adam. You can get in touch with us anytime. English at ruv.is. There is more from Ruv English with all the news from Iceland in English at ruv.is slash English. Roof English Radio is a daily English language radio from Iceland's national broadcaster, Roof.